Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. Today's episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, which are, well, the most comfortable medical apparel on the entire planet. Today I have a wonderful conversation with Sarah Showstrom. Sarah is the Associate Chief Nursing Officer at Hebrew Rehabilitation Center, which is a proud affiliate of Harvard Medical School. Today, Sarah and I talk in depth about stress. Uh, in particular, we talk about stress as it exists in healthcare organizations and what we as professionals within the healthcare arena can do to mitigate stress. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how I can help myself, how I can help others, and how I can help the work environment in which I operate. Uh, and I'm sure you will too. So hang on to your seats, folks. This is a wild ride with Sarah Shostrom and uh, get ready to learn a lot. Good morning, Sarah Shostrom. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. It is my delight. And I, I'm looking at your name and in my head, I can say it just fine, but saying it out loud, saying hello to you, your last name is the first time I've said that, that name out loud, and it was harder to pronounce than, I, than it was in my mind. Um, Trust me, you are not the only one who has had that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, it's good to talk to you, and, and uh, I'll use just your first name from, from this point forward. Um, but now that we have established your name, anyways, um, in the parlance of our times, what is it that you do? This tends to be the first question that we ask in social settings for whatever reason. What do you do? And, of course, professionally is the implication. So, so we'll just start, start there. What, what do you do, Sarah? Well, yes, uh, very good clarification on the professional piece, because what do you do is a very broad mm -hmm. existential question. Mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, professionally, I am a nurse by profession. Uh, I currently serve as the Associate Chief Nursing Officer at Hebrew Rehabilitation Center, which is located, um, we have multiple sites under our uh, Hebrew Senior Life uh, Umbrella Organization, but our Hebrew Rehabilitation Healthcare Centers are in um, both Roslindale and Dedham, Massachusetts. We have two main healthcare center sites. I see. Okay, good. Um, you probably see lots of action there. How are the how are the hospitals in Massachusetts right now? Uh, it is challenging. Uh, not unexpectedly so. Um, you know, the last two years in general have been obviously challenging for not just our our nation but the world. Um, you know, we are not immune here in Massachusetts to all these waves of virus. I, I think we've been fortunate in the state of Massachusetts not only to have, um, you know, to have very good healthcare resources and numerous hospital facilities, um, but we also have a high vaccination rate, which has bolstered um, to some degree our, our state population through some of these surges um, in the pandemic. But it has not been easy. We are um, not unlike all of our uh, fellow healthcare facilities across the nation, plagued by staffing shortages. Um, and, uh, you know, there are still significant increases in hospitalizations through this most recent surge of the pandemic with the Omicron variant. Um, and so capacity in the hospitals is, is, um, is soaring. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it has been a challenge for certain. Yeah, yeah. It sounds. It sounds. I'm in Arizona, and it sounds a. Uh, sounds a lot like Arizona. It's just uh, 
it is a challenge everywhere. I don't think anyone anyone's immune to it. Um, before we get too deep into this, I want to circle back. When I asked what you do, and then I clarified professionally, you kind of <laughs> joked that, hey, that's an existential question. And I've thought about that <laughs> myself. Like, why are we always asking what people do for a job? There's so much more. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to tee that one up for you. So let me clar- re-clarify it and say, what do you do existentially? <laughs> Maybe I've set myself up for a very challenging question. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. What do I do? Um, I try to uh, live a, a curious life where I'm constantly exploring new things, new places, new adventures, uh, where I'm trying to learn and grow every day and, uh, you know, live with an attitude of gratitude and um, hopefully better myself as I go along. Those are good things. Those are yeah, good things. I, I'd say that's uh that's the hope at least, right? The, yeah, the ideal. Absolutely. Um, so in the in, in your curiosity, in your in your studies, I, I know that you've been drawn to studying studying stress, right? Yeah, I'd say um, you know, I've certainly been um i've been interested in and passionate about sort of well-being in general um but only sort of dabbled here and there and i think um you know with the pandemic and the onset of the pandemic it really sort of pushed me further to um take a look at what we were all going through and really um just by necessity have to think about what our staff were going through. Um, in my role as the Associate Chief Nursing Officer, I am I bear the responsibility, um, you know, willingly and happily, but um, to support our nursing teams. And um, you know, that first surge of fire of the pandemic in 2020 really was just an overwhelming experience for so many of our staff. And um, I really wanted to to look at, you know, not just what are the burdens, what is our staff facing, but what can we do with that? And how can we, um, you know, take a look at some of the stress research out there and the implications for interventions so that we can best support our teams. So that's kind of what led me down this journey of, um, you know, sort of stumbling into um, researching more about stress and, um, programs and interventions that support our teams through those tough times. Sounds very intriguing. And I, I want to ask, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to get into some more specific questions, but before we do, um, what, if, if, if asked, what was the, what's the most intri- interesting or intriguing thing that you've learned in the last couple of years as you studied stress, what pops to mind? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I, I think, I don't know about intriguing, but I think one of the um, most hopeful things that I found um, in thinking about interventions is that um, while stress and the idea of saying words like trauma or PTSD, anxiety, you know, all of those words bear a lot of burden. And you think about a really significant response, therapeutic response being required. And I think the most hopeful thing that has come up as we think about some of the interventions has been that there are ways that we as more lay people, and I mean, sort of not as a psychiatrist, not as a PhD in psychology, not as a mental health counselor, but there are 
ways that we can all support each other um, and that we can support ourselves that do, do not require having those advanced degrees. And I think that's, um, you know, a hopeful thing. Yeah, that certainly is. That certainly is a hopeful thing. Um, not everybody has the luxury of being able to pay $200 an hour for a therapist and, or any of the other interventions that might be, might be available that, that have a price tag associated with them. Mm -hmm. So it is Mm -hmm. very hopeful that we can take care of ourselves. Um, I think we probably should define what stress means because language is important. And I think this is one of those words that can be used in lots of different contexts and mean lots of different things to lots of different people. What is your working definition of the word stress? Um, That is a challenging question. Um, I I don't know that I would want to operate solely with one specific definition of stress, but I mean, we can just very globally state it as sort of a, a feeling of whether it be physical or emotional um, tension. I think that's how I've, uh, read it described in, in articles. Um, so that would be a very general statement. Um, but you know, just like, um, in describing trauma, you know, there are multiple ways that it could be described. I think that's a, a decent enough general statement about what we imply when we say stress. And I think important to understand that, you know, stress is not, Um, comes from numerous, is caused by numerous different factors. So it's not just the physical experience, but there are the emotional experiences as well as the physical burdens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and stress kind of gets a, gets a a bad reputation, but it, it's there for a reason. I mean, we've evolved and if it was purely bad, we, it seems like we'd have enough millions of years of evolution behind us now to evolve out of it. But it serves a purpose. Um, True. You make an excellent point. And in fact, um, there are research studies, and, and I should, I'll have to send you references, but um, numerous studies that indicate, you know, that stress, there's not just um, stress as a well, how should I say this? Um, the sort of the effect of stress and that sort of perfect, happy medium of, you know, stress having a good effect. And um, examples of that are, you know, you think of um, just purely from a scientific standpoint, um, cells exposed to heat stressors that then adapt to that exposure to heat to create um uh, adaptive mechanisms to be able to sustain themselves through future experiences of heat exposure. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and so there are numerous examples in, in scientific literature of how the body physically responds to stressors to adapt, to make them more resilient in the, as they move forward. Um, you know, that's like sort of evolution and adaptation at its, at its finest. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, literature indicates the same is true of individuals from an emotional and psychological standpoint too, you know, that's building resilience. And I forget where I read it. So forgive me, and I will try to find the resource. Uh, But there was uh, a study that I'd happened upon that indicated that people's um, level of satisfaction with their lives 
um, was on sort of a bell curve and that people who were exposed to um, really significantly high amounts of stress, um, not surprisingly, weren't as satisfied with their life. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, people who had had really no stress exposure and no tough times, if you will, also weren't all that satisfied with your life. That there was this sort of happy medium where if you expose people to challenges in life and they're able to overcome those challenges and feel um, a sense of accomplishment with having overcome the odds, overcome adversity, built themselves into a better person, that there was a higher level of satisfaction with their life with a sort of moderate amount of exposure to challenges. Um, And so, you know, it's not just sort of the fact that you can be more emotionally satisfied, but that exposure to those stressors can help you to build your ability to weather future storms. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to it. And it, I, I think it, it probably has a, uh, a preventative effect, uh, handling stress. It, it helps you build resilience for resilience against future stressors. But I think it also um, is an end unto itself in the sense that overcoming stressful situations or managing stressful situations, we'll say, uh, will lead to a sense of accomplishment and a sense of, oh, hey, I, I had a hard thing in my life and I managed it well. And, and knowing that I can do that, I feel better equipped to, to move forward. So I can see For how there sure. are benefits in, in dealing yeah. with stress. And, you know, I've talked to, this is anecdotal only, but, you know, I've talked to so many people and and I'm sure everyone can relate to this experience where you've spoken to someone and they've said, um, you know, I went through this horrible experience, whether it's the loss of a loved one or an accident or, you know, some traumatic event and where they say, you know, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have changed a thing because I learned so much from this experience and it's made me more appreciative of you know, life, or it's made me um, into the person I am now. And how often we hear people reflect on challenges that they've been through in the past as having molded them into a better, more, um, you know, happy individual. So uh, there's something to be said for that experience of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know? Yeah, there's that's a that's a common phrase for a reason, right. And I think the key being um, really in in you know, something that we've had to think about a lot through the through the pandemic is really, you know, how do we get people through those tough times? How do we build adaptive coping mechanisms and, um, you know, get people through there to the point where then they are able to become more resilient? Yeah, and that that is the question, because and and by the end of this this podcast here, I think you're going to answer that for us and everyone who listens oh, well, will have a bold statement. <laughs> I hope I can give um, useful information and, and pertinent resources. I, I don't know that I'll be okay mm. answer all the questions, but I hope I'll at least guide people in the right direction for, I have, for obtaining that information. I have, I have full confidence in you. Um, it, you know, you, you, you talked about this, um, this concept, although you didn't use this particular phrase, but this concept of hermosis or hermetics, are you familiar with this? Mm-hmm. Hermetic stress. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about that on a, on a couple of occasions, but yeah, that's sort of um, what we referred to with this idea of that, you know, just the right amount of stress. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I was listening to um, uh, David Sinclair. Uh, he's a professor uh, out of Harvard. You're at Harvard. Uh, he's at Harvard, and he's he's uh, his specialty is longevity. And he he talks okay. about the things that we can do to to live longer lives, and putting our bodies under stress. And this is again, there's different aspects of stress. We're talking about physical stress here, but putting our bodies under physical stress is perhaps the best thing we can do to live uh-huh. longer lives. And the examples given are cold plunges, um, fasting. That's the bi- that's the big one. Um, you know, waiting until you're really really hungry to eat. Um, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be really good for you. Um, and uh, having practiced some of those things, I tend to feel better. I've yet to live a long life, so I, I don't know. I can't prove his hypothesis or not, but <laughs> I certainly feel better, so I'll keep doing it. Yeah, you've certainly hit upon, um, and that's the, that sort of perfect example of um, the idea of, uh, you know, f- the body's physical ability to adapt to stress exposure to become more resilient. And there's that sort of on that line, you have the stressor, and, and that's that same sort of bell curve or where you um, have just just the right amount of stress. You hit that maximal benefit. Um, you know, and too much stress can cause a harmful impact, but you're looking to to stress the system just enough that you can respond and build build your you know physical um, your physical response. And uh, so, yeah, I name some of the biggest ones too: the dietary restrictions, heat and cold exposures have been known. So not just the the cold exposure, but there's um, been other research about people's exposure to saunas and mm-hmm. um, how uh, there's benefit there. And of course, you know, we forget too, that's why we exercise, right? We yeah. stress our system. Yeah, absolutely. To build our, our, our physical capabilities. What doesn't kill And hopefully we do strong. that often, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So we're talking now about physical stress and, and, yes. and, and kind of intentionally putting our bodies under under duress under stress mm. in an effort mm-hmm. to to grow stronger um but but perhaps the more more prevalently accepted definition of stress is these external things that like you talked about that create some type of attention um something uncomfortable whether it's a work situation i have demands i have deadlines i have children to raise i have health concerns all of these worries mm-hmm. and concerns that's that's often what we we talk about when we talk about stress, um, and in Arizona, and it sounds like in Massachusetts, and in, in fact nationally, this is a concern. But one one of our real big concerns right now, in faced by skilled nursing facilities, anyways, is, is staffing, and, and mm. stress has got to factor into this. You know, in, in this pandemic where the healthcare system is under such monumental. Um, burden and 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 now we have a staffing shortage like we've never seen before. Do you have an opinion on how stress in healthcare organizations might stack up against stressors in say other professions? Um, uh, in other words, is working in a healthcare organization particularly stressful, uh, or maybe does it carry its own set of stressors that that other professionals aren't faced with? I mean, part of this, I feel like maybe my own bias as a healthcare professional, particularly of the last two years, I would say yes, without without certainty and without hesitation. 
Um, you know, part of that is just thinking pre-pandemic. Um, you know, there there are innate um, experiences that healthcare workers face on a daily basis from um, shift work, uh, which is not unique to the healthcare profession, but certainly can be a, a challenge and a tax to the system physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you have long hours. Often, you know, healthcare workers are working twelve-hour shifts. Um, you know, if there are shortages or mandates, those shifts can extend to 16 hour shifts. Um, You have people working double shifts just as a part of their daily workflow. And again, those are not things that are unique to healthcare, but certainly that make healthcare workers more predisposed um, to stress. And and that would be the physical component of stress. Um, You know, heavy workloads and staff shortages can certainly create situations where not only are there longer shifts or multiple shifts or picking up shifts, um, but, you know, uh, there's, you know, how how often do do nursing team members or healthcare workers joke about, and, you know, it's, I say we joke about, although it's not no laughing matter, you know, oh, I didn't get a chance to have lunch, I didn't get a chance to run to the bathroom, you know, it, it can be very challenging, the fast pace and the, the heavy workloads. Um, and again, those are more physically stressful um, challenges. But uh, if you think about the sort of emotional challenges of healthcare, um, regardless of the environment, um, and you know, I work in a setting that has rehabilitative services and long-term chronic hospital care, and um, But whether you're in an inpatient acute or tertiary care facility um, treating patients or a long-term care setting, um, you're dealing with patients who are ill, who are frail, who are vulnerable, um, and you see people at their most vulnerable. You see people who are at their end of their life um, dealing with the uh, emotional strain of those final moments in their lives, and you're dealing with loss and death. Um, and not only in, in, in caring for the patients who are going through those experiences or the residents, but you also deal with their entire family unit. As we think about the care that we provide being not just care to one individual, but care to their family and loved ones as well. And, and oftentimes those, their family unit and those closest to them need just as much support and reassurance, um, as the patient themselves. Um, and those can be very emotionally overwhelming and stressful, if we're talking stress, uh, experiences for the staff who are providing care. So yeah. I would say that was a long response to my very short answer of, <laughs> yes, I feel like as healthcare workers, we're quite predisposed and vulnerable to, to stressors just by nature of our work. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree just just the environment in which you work is almost definitionally stressful i mean most people mm-hmm. would agree agree that being around uh sickness and death is inherently stressful um knowing this then let's say i'm a i'm an administrator to a skilled nursing facility what can i do what interventions can i take what steps can i can I take to mitigate stress in my building? Sure. Uh, Again, a loaded question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are so many things. And I I think, um, you know, there is, um, there are short-term strategies. There are small, simple strategies. There are more long-term approaches and, um, you know, 
when you think about larger programs to implement. Um, so I think it uh, in part depends on sort of what you're dealing with um, and in part depends on the ability and resources, sort of the ability to invest, the commitment from leadership, the resources at your disposal to invest in, in larger programs. But um, I'd say, you know, particularly amidst the pandemic, which has of course brought forth significant other stressful factors um, that, uh, you know, were, you know, infection and um, risk of exposure to disease is always a part of healthcare, but obviously that's taken a, a new turn with the pandemic. But, um, you know, I'd say there are a lot of sort of simple things, <laughs> simple is a, a loaded word again, yeah. but um, that leaders can take. Um, and I think uh, a really useful resource uh, that I direct people to is um, the foundational research for the Stress First Aid Program um, that highlights the five factors. Um, they're sort of the key factors for trauma intervention. Um, and this research served um, to further develop the Stress First Aid Program, which was developed for the military and has since been adapted for other professions. But this research identified that there are five factors that really an individual requires to feel, to sort of recover from trauma and affects the stress. And that's to promote a sense of safety, a sense of confidence or self-efficacy, a sense of calm, a sense of connectedness, and a sense of hope. And I feel like those Considering those five factors and considering sort of interventions in each of those domains can really help to direct and guide um, how we respond to teams. And I think um, amidst the pandemic, the sort of first concern being staff safety and, um, you know, research that's evolved throughout the last couple of years and, and um, on sort of staff experience of burnout and um, stress and strain and psychological well-being um, has really focused around, um, you know, the experience of their, um, their own sort of perception of safety is a lot related to, not surprisingly, um, their perception of risk uh, for exposure and risk for infection. Mm. So, mitigating that, and certainly this was more of a, an impact in the first surge when PPE was so um, in, in such short supply. And mm -hmm. I think we've come a long way from the spring of 2020 in that regard, but still um, ensuring that you have appropriate PPE available um, and that staff are well-versed in how to physically protect themselves um, from risk of exposure continues as we see this new, very highly contagious variant. So that continues to be an important factor. Um, other things to consider in sort of the, um, the idea of safety is um, staff, research has shown that staff working in structured units and really having consistency in their, their work um, makes them feel more safe and in control. Um, and communication uh, has been a huge, huge factor that's been highlighted in a lot of different studies as being a key component of 
allowing staff to feel more safe and an environment more controlled. And so having leadership um, be able to give clear, direct, and frequent communication to teams to set expectations, to formation, that's reassuring and enhances um, team's sense of safety. Hmm. So it sounds like to me, I'm deducing here that that a big source of stress is the unknown and um, absolutely and in yes. communication and and clear expectations and defining roles and mm-hmm. ongoing mm-hmm. dialogue can really reduce that stress if not eliminate it. Um, and, and and I'm just uh, connecting dots here, but it it seems as if just knowing knowing what's expected of you and knowing what's going on around you, you know, by, by just having that knowledge, you, you can feel more comfortable. And that's just, that just makes natural sense, right? Absolutely. Um, providing clear expectations, clear directives, um, not only makes the environment feel more controlled, but it also there, that relates back to staff's sense of their self-efficacy or their competence that, if they have clear direction, you can you know what to do, you know what's expected of you, and um, that's tied into too in terms of competence. Staff training is another factor that's been identified throughout the literature in the last couple of years as uh, really being a key factor in sort of mitigating um, some negative stress responses and really just ensuring that you have as much education, as much training, both proactively and in the moment, um, to make staff feel more competent and confident. Um, And that's true in general, but certainly throughout these pandemic times, uh, targeted education around um, the COVID-19 virus itself and infection control protocols have been um, key factors to help um, staff feel more competent and also more safe. Mm, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Um, what else? What else can can administrators do or leaders do? Uh, just kind of across the board, uh, mm-hmm. just a toolkit that you would recommend for anybody. Sure, I would say um, a, a big thing that I would say to leadership in general. Um, you know, what regardless of what level of leadership that is but is being present. Physical presence um, is key and engaging with the workforce. Uh, We've found here, and this is anecdotal, though I will say sort of um, leadership support, that sort of general language of leadership support is cited in research as being a um, protective factor for staff from suffering um, from, you know, psychological um, trauma, if you will. Um, So leadership support does play a protective role uh, for staff. And we've certainly found anecdotally here in our facility that, um, you know, going out and being with staff in their most dire of times is hugely important. They feel as if they're not alone. They feel as if the organization is creating an environment where people are there to help them across all levels. Um, They want to know that leadership is not abandoning them in the most tough and dire of times. Uh, 
here at our organization, when 2020 hit, when um, you know the first surge came upon us, there was not a single nurse manager, um, member of our professional development team, um, quality team that didn't, you know, put on their scrubs and go out on the floors and work side by side with our nurses and nursing assistants and therapy teams and clinical teams. Um, and I, I really feel like that was incredibly influential at making our staff feel supported. Yeah, that's huge. That's such a such an important thing. I, I completely agree for the for leadership to to be out there as an example, showing their showing their team that they're in there in it with them, whatever the it might be. Um, Sense of support, just knowing that there is a support system, and you know, as humans, we're social creatures, right? We thrive on social support and connection. And connectedness is one of those five factors in this literature that, um, you know, helps to um, overcome trauma. And so, you know, support from leadership plays a role in that connectedness. Um, but, you know, being a leader that's out on the floors and front facing with your teams also allows you to enhance your other strategies for stress intervention by being present to be able to have that clear, frequent communication and provide information and education. So, you know, it's not just your presence, but then what you do with that time too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's insightful. What's it, what is, and I'm sure there are many, many other tools and strategies and interventions and and, um, you know, feel free to interject at any time, but what's at risk if I, if I just adopt the mindset that, Hey, stress is part of life. This is just what we deal with. Put your nose to the grindstone. And I, and I just do nothing to intentionally manage the stress. What, what am I, what am I jeopardizing by adopting that type of a mindset? Yeah. Um, yes, not, <laughs> not the best approach. And uh, I'm no psychologist, I'm no psychiatrist, but, um, you know, research indicates that that sort of stoic approach, which um, is not uncommon in our, in our healthcare profession, um, that sort of stoic approach, or the just sort of put your head down and, and keep pushing through, um, that that avoidance of stress or the experience of stress um, can further maladaptive coping mechanisms. So if you don't take a moment to pause and manage what you're going through, you can adapt in, in ineffective ways. And that can lead you to, um, you know, really then become not just sort of injured by your experience of stress, but develop more serious repercussions, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, um, you know, or other, you know, we certainly have seen um, a number of individuals that have experienced increase in use of um, substances as a maladaptive coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly the sort of put your head down and, and push through is not effective. Um, not effective. Yeah. <laughs> Not effective. And you know, it's tough too, because as, as healthcare workers, I've used this language that I've read um, in other literature that it, we have a service before self mentality. 
we are caregivers who, are, you know, so many of the people who are in the caring professions, regardless of discipline, you know, we've entered into this profession because we truly want to make a difference. We want to care for other people. And that's such a beautiful thing. Um, but time and time again, I see that the people who are drawn to this profession are those naturally and inherently caring individuals who, you know, unfortunately don't care for themselves. We're so good at caring for other people and so bad at caring for ourselves. And so it kind of lends itself to pushing through, um, thinking, putting patients first, putting residents first and not stopping to, to take a break yourself. Um, and uh, so, so that can certainly be a challenge and a big thing that we're up against in, in providing care to caregivers. Yeah, it's, it sounds like um, healthcare professionals need to take a page from the airlines and uh, put the oxygen mask on first before giving Absolutely. it to those under their stewardship. <laughs> and it's so funny that you should mention that because um, I, I've partnered with our um, our wellness director here at uh, Hebrew Senior Life, and uh, we've used slides that have pictures of oxygen masks as we've <laughs> taught staff that, you know, just pretend you're on a plane. You cannot help anyone unless you first help yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, how can you care for others? You know, it, it sounds cliche, right? But it, but it's so true. If you're not well, if you're not healthy, if you're not capable and at your best, you can't give. You know, there are so many, um, you know, ways that we see that uh, put out there in our society. I, there was a children's book about, you know, how full is your bucket? I don't know if you've heard of that one, but mm -hmm. um, a story about, um, you know, some kids and their their grandfather was telling them you have to everybody has a, an imaginary bucket. And when you do good things or have good things, you know, that fills your bucket. And the negative takes, you know, the negative things that happen or the, the bad attitudes or the, you know, things you go through take away from the bucket. So the goal is you want to fill your bucket. Hmm. And when you fill your bucket, you can help others fill their bucket. And so, I mean, there are so many ways that that is, you know, pervasive in, in things that we see about caring for ourselves and caring for others that, you know, it starts with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to get that book uh, for not that that's easy is it <laughs> as much as i can talk about it you know we we know that uh you know it's not easy thing to do to turn the turn the care inward it's it's truly not and and for many of us it's perhaps the hardest thing to do uh, absolutely I, I don't know why I, I don't know why it's so challenging it's it's um this what I'm about to say is not an original idea. I, it's I've heard this <laughs> regurgitated by many different people, so it's it's not not my concept. But but the the narrator that we have inside our own minds the, that is narrating our lives essentially. You and I will be talking, and then I'll have this other guy in there that's that's part of the conversation. Only I hear him, and you don't. And you have one too. We all do. Not the schizophrenic narrator, but just the, <laughs> just the narration that we do to, our, to ourselves. And if if I really pay attention to that voice, um, I I realize one that he is always there. That voice is it's always there. It's pretty relentless. Uh, and and two, um, it's not very kind. Oftentimes, and, and I'm just yeah. speaking about the narration that happens in my own mind, but. 
that I'm not very kind to myself and and it's not intentional. I don't set out to not like myself, but that the the things that I'll, I'll say, gosh, you're so stupid, you know, the whatever it might mm. be. And mm. and I think, man, if I had if I had anybody else in my life that was with me as often as I'm with me, or, you know, and who spoke with me that spoke to me that way, yeah. I'd leave. I wouldn't be friends with that person. Yet I carry this person. We tolerate it from ourselves. It's yeah. it's so true. Um, you know, we're, that's I mean, that's the expression, right? We're our own worst critics. Um, and I, I see that. You know, it's so funny. I you know, we talk. I, I've spent two years talking with teams about being kind to ourselves, and I just actually had a a meeting with someone after having done some self assessments of my work performance and having colleagues assess my performance. And he said to me you know, you're just brutal to yourself. <laughs> and, you know, I gave myself the, the worst review of anyone. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's easy to be to be critical of ourselves. And yet we're so much more compassionate and caring, caring with others. And, and I think we all need to take a page um, from that book of, of really learning to turn that compassion towards ourselves. And, um, you know, it's interesting in, in researching and reading about stress and, um, you know, how we can, um, you know, build our, our coping skills. One of the phrases that I happened upon at one point um, was to stockpile compassion, mm-hmm. not just for others, but for yourself. And I think that is so true. You know, how can we just sort of, you know, be forgiving of ourselves, be forgiving of others. And, um, you know, compassion is, is something we talk about when in, um, thinking about trauma-informed care approaches and in stress response and just how can we build compassion and be more thoughtful, mm. be gentler with ourselves, kinder to ourselves. And again, very, very much easier to do for other people than for ourselves. But yeah. um, that's a, a worthy it, task to undertake. It, it certainly is. And you asked the question rhetorically, are there, are there quick answers to that? How can we develop compassion for ourselves? Yeah, I wish I had a, a quick answer for you. I think sometimes, you know, it, that's a such a tough question, right? Because there's so much emotion involved with how we see ourselves, how we, um, you know, and like you said, calling ourselves bad name, you know, even to, I'm stupid, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, it's so easy to get in our heads and not take care of ourselves. I think sometimes, um, you know, the amount of work that goes into sort of overcoming those um, challenges is is significant. But I think um, one of the things that we can do is begin with small, simple things, um, oftentimes things that address the physical first, maybe a little more tangible. Um, One of the things that we teach our teams here is just the importance of a pause and to stop amidst your day um, and how vital that is to m- ensuring that you can get through your day. Um, and sometimes that's, um, you know, if you've just had an incident or something really challenging happen, if you just had an emergence, uh, emergent situation come up, you know, taking a moment to pause after kind of coming through that. Sometimes it's just, um, 
you know, inserting those pauses or stops throughout your day, knowing that proactively you have to kind of bank your energy and your, you know, your calm and, um, you know, taking those small moments throughout the day to do that. And they don't have to be big. Um, you know, research shows that just a couple of minutes of a pause can really be effective at mitigating the experience, the body's experience of stress. Um, so starting with small physical things can really be helpful. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've read also too, when, if we want to tackle the idea of sort of how forgiving we are of ourselves and how compassionate we are with ourselves. Um, we've talked a lot here at this organization too, about um, how useful it can be to have a couple of phrases that you can even just say out loud to yourself. Um, you know, one challenge that we face here with our nurse manager team is that, you know, the work is never done. And, um, you know, we get into those patterns of, oh my gosh, it's six o'clock, it's seven, you know, I, I still have more to do. I still have, you know, more going on. And, and being able to say, I've done enough for today. Mm. This will be for tomorrow. Um, and being able to say, you know, I did good work today, or just, you know, some, some real small phrases that you can just kind of as a, almost like a mantra, you know, be able to insert at certain points and tell yourself as if someone else was telling you. Uh, and sometimes those can be helpful too. You know, what I did was good enough <laughs> that, <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think about some of the long days that I've had recently where I go into my office in the morning and you know, come out at night and there's no one there, mm -hmm. no one there to compliment me or berate me. It's just me and my work. Uh, that's kind of the nature of what I do sometimes. It, it gives me long periods of just researching and writing. Um, and and I, I see that giving myself, and I don't do this, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, I haven't done that, but I can see how giving myself that uh, encouragement could be very, mm -hmm. very helpful because we need that. We, we need that. We need encouragement. We need connection. We need to feel validated. And if we're in a, in the type of work where, uh, no one's seeing our product on a, in a real time basis, I mean, I, I can yeah. certainly see how validating myself would be helpful. So I will. And you know, it's, that. it's interesting. Uh, we as people, um, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to be optimistic. And I, I forget where I've read this, and I don't think it was necessarily related to anything health in healthcare, but um, that we tend to focus on the negatives or feel the effect of the negative more than we feel the effect of the positive. Yeah. Um, I think I might have read this in, in relation to financial experiences at one point, you know, that a loss is felt um, so much more strongly than a, than a gain when it comes to, you know, finances. Mm -hmm. And so um, that can lead people to being more risk averse. I think that's, that's where I read it, but I don't quote me on that. <laughs> but essentially, you think about, you know, when we go through negative things, or when we have challenges, um, that can often really uh, you know, be significantly more impactful. And, and I've had that experience myself. And I think other people can relate to that story that, um, you know, it only takes one patient complaint, or one family member that's dissatisfied and gives you a hard time to make your day feel like it was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And you could have had, you know, five other patients that are, 
you know, had successes and wins or, you know, that successfully discharged or had, um, you know, great days. Um, but somehow that one experience really just sort of clouds the, the, the rest of the day. And I think that's true of so many things. So being able to be kind to ourselves um, is, is so important. And I think on that note too, and this is kind of another falls into the category of maybe easy to say, hard to do, but that idea of gratitude or recognition of the things that have gone well. And I, I feel like that's such a hard thing to do sometimes, but you know, there's a reason that people talk about it so much, you know, whether it's a gratitude journal, a gratitude jar, even just moment to pond about things that have gone well. Um, and really making a space to reflect on that because that can get lost so easily amidst just one or two challenges. Yeah, it certainly can. And I've read, I've read similar, similar research. Um, and, and what comes to mind as you're talking, I, I read a study in which they, they concluded that you, you need to hear, you need to hear, um, you need to hear five positives for your for your mind or your brain to attribute the same significance as one negative yes uh, so exactly it's um and, and, you know i guess that's a that's the, that's our negativity bias right that's what's allowed our species mm -hmm. to to survive off this time we i think the, the most famous study is is the is the study in which they had a, a rope coiled like a snake something to that effect and Time and time again, you know, the, the, the assumption was it's a snake. It's not a rope, even mm. if a snake mm -hmm. is not even, there's no reason for a snake to be there. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, contextually, why would a snake be in the middle of an office? But people go, oh, <laughs> snake, snake. And it's because our brains are hardwired to look for threats, you know, because our ancestors on the savannah really, <laughs> that, that was, everything was life and death. And so you're looking for yeah. And now here we are in our comfy little offices and our air conditioners where we really don't have snakes and dangers like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, yet our mind hasn't evolved to keep up with that. We, it's, we're not uh, evolutionarily, we're not as quick as, as the engineers who are producing the, the software and the, the creature comforts that, that, we, mm -hmm. that we have these days. So we haven't caught up and we're looking for threats when threats don't exist, but our brains don't know that, and so they just kind of generate threats to keep us on our toes. They work against us. I don't like Indeed. that. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's so interesting, too, when we think about, um, you know, those five positive things that we need to overcome, that one negative thing, and um, it's so critical, too. Uh, you know, it's a challenge, but it's so critical to have that. And in fact, that foundational research I was referring to for the Stress First Aid program identify just that, that uh, promoting a sense of hope is essential for us to be able to overcome challenges and overcome traumas that you have to sustain hope. Mm. Um, uh, not unsurprising, right? Um, yeah. That we as a people need to be hopeful for the future to, to be able to continue to successfully march forward. Um, so, you know, another place where it's super important for um, us as communities, for leadership teams and healthcare leaders to really consider how we promote hope and that, you know, that sense of joy of work, um, even amidst the most challenging and dire of times. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as you said, that it is a it's a simple solution. Simple is not um, does not does not mean easy, of course. But but when you say, okay, we need hope, um, I, I think to myself, okay, I I can I can be hopeful. And I think of all the good things in my life and how if I do X, Y, Z will surely follow. And I believe that. And in the moment, I can be optimistic and, and uh, feel good. And then five minutes later, uh, an email comes in and all sense of hope is mm-hmm. vanquished. And it's, uh, it's as if it works in a mental um, exercise, but it doesn't really it doesn't really give me the hardware update that I need. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you yeah. do that? How do you, okay. I, I mean, how do you gosh, just decide to be hopeful? Yeah. The hundred million dollar question, right. You know, I, and, and you're right. I, I think, you know, to some degree we can say, you know, the attitude that you bring to life is a choice. Sure. But you know, then like you said, we can, we can choose and then something bad happens and then it's so easy to, to, you know, choose differently. Yeah, I think there's a lot. It, I I think that there's a lot of practice involved as an individual in learning how to choose that sort of attitude of gratitude and to you know choose to sort of look at situations differently. And that's not that's a long term thing, right? And that has to have significant investment from the individual in wanting to change the way that they approach their life and their work. And, um, you know, if we think about ourselves as healthcare organization and leadership teams, um, you know, we can't make that choice for individuals. But what we can do is begin to think about ways that we can infuse a sense of hope and celebration and joy of work into the day to day. Um, And, you know, there are long-term and short-term strategies for that. Certainly just even just simple things like um, having teams, you know, highlight just recognitions. If you get a recognition from a patient or a family for a job well done, taking the time to recognize that individual amidst the team and celebrate that good work. If you have a, a patient who's recovered or, you know, um, uh, moved to a lower level of care or whatnot, uh, celebrating that we do something here called success stories um, through our uh, in our short-term rehab units when we see patients that make these successful recoveries we take a moment to pause to recognize the patient to recognize the team to take some pictures to celebrate as a group and and that is such a joyous occasion to to take advantage of those moments where you see the good work and the success happen um, even simple things as you know, celebrating staff birthdays and and recognizing um, the the good and taking advantage of moments of celebration. Um, you know, we had. Uh, I, I don't think we're the first organization to do this, but our rehab floor did a tie dye Friday through this summer, where they all wore tie dyed shirts on Fridays, and it just you know, to enhance a sense of camaraderie, to enhance a sense of togetherness and build connectedness that it's so important, but that that also brought that sense of levity and joy um, in times when, you know, that's in short supply. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing how the, the solutions are so, um, so obvious, really, yet Sometimes, the problem yeah. is so prevalent. It's like, 
the implementation is is got to be it, it's it's just harder than it it seems that it should be okay we have mm. we have stress and we it's it's impacting us negatively it's it's causing everything from health problems to relationship problems to uh, self-perception problems you name it it's it's having yeah. an impact on it and then we are given this these tools that are that really amount to having a good time <laughs> <laughs> being friendly being a good human talking yeah. to people um, and and yet stress is still so prevalent <laughs> the negative impacts of stress is still, are still so prevalent it's yeah. it's quite ironic, really. Well, and I think too, you know, you make a good point. Like some of these strategies are super simple, right? And and that's good. That's not the those and those alone are not the you know the sole factors. But I think too, you make an important distinction that um, you know those little things can get lost in the larger picture. And I think that you know we come into work and you know, the fast pace of the healthcare environment and the fast pace of life in, you know, the U.S. in general, um, you know, we just start running. And it's so easy for those little things to get lost along the way. You know, we put our head down, we go, we, uh, you know, work crazy hours and drive too fast, you know, all of those things. And it's easy to forget or to forget to pause. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've done here as an organization is, you um, made a an organizational commitment to implementing a stress first aid program that gives leadership and teams the education on sort of how to build peer-to-peer -peer support program for surgical safety and the you know aside from just sort of building awareness and building support structures and building knowledge you're also making a point to be intentional about use of various strategies simple or complex and i think that um you know the more you highlight the importance and then try to build that in and to make these moments intentional that's where you're going to start to see benefits so you know it's easy to kind of um with anything and and this is like you know not the first time anyone will have ever heard but change is hard right mm -hmm. and so often we see whether it's a program or any sort of personal change um you know you do it for a little bit and then it, you fall off the wagon i mean that's why so many people fail at their new year's resolution that's mm -hmm. right because we start off strong, we're, you know, fast out of the gate, and then it just is a flop. So I think it's important to sort of ensure that you have um, commitments to doing things that are intentional, um, and that you give people strategies that feel manageable. Yeah. Yeah, that intentional part, the intentionality is, is really important. Um, because I think a lot of these, a lot of these strategies we've talked about are things that we're kind of just doing anyways, um, but but without the without the stress reduction intent, um, we're not assigning any okay. value to these things. As we uh, let's let's just use um, communication as a as an as an example. Um, a stress reduction tool or intervention that you talked about is, is having clear communication and expectations and sharing feelings and such. Um, if I, if I am under a lot of stress, 
and and have these clear um, conversations with clear communication, but I'm not being intentional about them. I'm I'm just maybe venting about the stress and not mm-hmm. and not thinking mm-hmm. that this is going to help. Then I I'm I'm no I'm no scientist, doctor, psychologist, nothing like that. But I would think that the body kind of intuitively intuitively knows. Okay, th- I'm doing this thing to help with this broader thing, and and by assigning that value and that that um, yeah assigning that value to it your body will kind of adapt and 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 promote healing whereas without the intention piece maybe that wouldn't happen and the reason i'm thinking this is it's kind of a, and a, there's kind of a parallel there to the placebo effect in the sense that uh, you, if you take a pill you think it's going to do a thing and of course the pill is a sugar pill um, but the thing still happens. It's because you are, you're taking this pill for a reason. There's intention. Your body thinks it's going to help. And therefore your body does the, it does what it can to heal itself or to help itself. And some people talk about the placebo effect as if, oh, it's just a placebo. So, uh, the, the intervec- intervention is ineffective, but I would argue that it's just a placebo. Sure. Um, but I would drop the word just and say that the intervention could be effective and it's effective at initiating your body's ability to heal itself. And I, I think that kind of some of that might might cross over here as we implement some of these interventions with the in, with the intention intentionality. Yeah, the mind is a powerful, powerful thing, right? Um, but I, I would say, you know, something that came to mind as, as you were saying that and with regard to intentionality is also a strategy that we use here a lot, giving the no why, mm-hmm. um, you know, framing and talking about the reason for doing things or using keywords that will elicit the response you're looking for. So, for example, um, you know, when we had the first surge in the spring of 2020 and everything was kind of all over the place, where, what are, where's the PPE coming from? What are we doing? How are we even going in to see these patients? And what am I supposed to be wearing? And I remember going up to one of the floors and talking with a staff member who was shaking. She was so scared. Um, It was the first time that she'd been exposed to a COVID patient. She really didn't know what to do. And I remember, you know, saying, um, not just I'm going to be here with you, but I'm going to give you some information so that you know what is expected and you know how to best tackle this, and I'm going to help you through it, and hopefully that will make you feel more in control of the situation and more calm so that we can go in together and take care of the patient. And, you know, using some of those keywords of, you know, we're going to have the expectation all explain to you how to do it so you know what's expected of you um, so that we can sort of take control of the situation, you know, that those inserting those sort of keywords and giving the no why those can be really powerful tools for people in the moment and at least you know that's what i have found sort of anecdotally in working with the staff that um you know they they really do respond to that and if you're transparent about i'm telling you this because you know it's so easy for us to get stressed by the experiences that we're going through. And so we're going to try to do this because that can help us get through our day. It can help us to weather the storm. So we're going to set clear expectations as a team. We're going to 
come to a place where we can all talk about the challenges and how we're going to divide and conquer so that we work together. Um, you know, so being, like you said, intentional and explicit with the reason why we're doing something can be really incredibly helpful. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I, 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 I really appreciated what you've shared with me so far today. Um, and you know, something we haven't talked about just yet, but it's, um, in thinking about transparency and thinking about know why and thinking about being intentional is talking as a team, as an organization, as a population about stress and psychological safety and about, um, you know, normalizing the experience of stress. You know, it's not an unusual experience. We all go through stress, but particularly in the last two years, there is not one person who has not been affected by this pandemic and healthcare workers are, um, you know, significantly impacted and having the ability to speak openly about that and be able to recognize for individuals, you're not alone. We are all going through this. We are all affected by it and whatever you're experiencing, and it may not look like what you're um, you know, coworker is experiencing exactly, but all those reactions, however unique they are to you as a person, are are part of a response to these larger stressors. And I read somewhere a great phrase that you are having a normal reaction to an abnormal experience. This pandemic is a very unusual, um, you know, nothing like it that we've seen in our lives. And stress responses are a normal reaction. And having conversations with people so that you can normalize the experience um, is, is hugely important. And I think a helpful step too, as we think about um, beginning to remove the stigma uh, around stress responses and mental health illness in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in some ways, I, th I feel like people use the word stress um, because there is such a stigma associated with uh, different different terms describing mental health issues. It seems like stress sure. is a kind of a uh, maybe a euphemism for other things or can be anyways, you know, I'm stressed out. That's a lot. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot more palatable than, um, you know, I, I have a personality disorder, <laughs> you know? Well, uh, yeah. You begin to think, um, you know, challenging words like saying I'm anxious or I have anxiety or I'm depressed. I mean, those are very heavy words. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, there's a whole different, uh, a whole different experience that comes along with being able to comfortably use those words. Um, and then, you know, people's reactions to those words is different as well. Like you said, you know, people are just saying, oh, I'm so stressed out. You know, that's just an easy phrase, but to have someone come to you and say, I think I'm depressed or I'm feeling depressed, um, feels, feels significantly happier. And I think that can then, um, you know, people feel like they're unsure how to respond to that too. Um, so that's one of the beauties of the stress first aid program as well is beginning to openly talk about um, and use language, more universal language so that people don't feel terrified if somebody says, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling overwhelmed. 
Um, and the one of the uh, models that the stress first aid program uses is the stress continuum, mm -hmm. which is sort of green being sort of in the ready. Um, that's you at your best self. And then moving along the stress continuum to sort of reacting to stress, injured by stress and ill from stress. And as you think about sort of moving from green to yellow to orange to red across that continuum um, and it, the the continuum model, if you look at visual images of it, um, you know, just the color coding itself is helpful for people. Um, but then thinking about what are the bodies and the minds responses at each one of those sort of phases as you progress through that continuum. Um, so we've done a lot here at our organization to um, create a visual um, tool that walks people through the continuum and then begin to talk about it with our teams. How are you feeling today? And give people who may not feel comfortable, you know, I'm, I'm anxious or depressed that they could say, you know, I'm kind of feeling in the yellow or I'm kind of feeling in the orange today yeah. and um, make it a little easier to engage in some of those conversations. And it's, it's really interesting what we've seen and how we've seen teams respond to using that even just on sort of the first introduction of it. Um, I remember one team where we had a couple of nurse assistants and one of them said, you know, I'm feeling in the green. I'm, it's a great day. I, I feel like I'm in the zone. I'm working hard. Um, things are good. And uh, her peer um, said, you know, things have been tough. And, and I think there was, you know, personal things. She was at home, but she said, I'm really feeling like I'm in the it's been really challenging. And her peer who had said she was in the green looked over and said, I had no idea. How can I help? Can I get some, you know, do you need a break? Do you need to sit down for a minute? I'll grab your patient's colleagues. I'll cover your colleagues for a few minutes. So you can take a break. And it was really cool to see that even just being able to talk about it in a very superficial way and someone to have a space to say, guys, I'm not at my best allowed an opportunity for another team member to step in and say, how can I help? And without prompting, without, you know, any of the facilitators saying, you know, how could you help? She immediately said, Hey, I'll cover you for a few, like take a break, sit down. Yeah. yeah we, um, we do want to help. So, yeah. <laughs> we, so it's, it's really cool to see how just being able to create an environment where people feel more comfortable in talking about how they're feeling and how they're doing and you know recognizing in themselves and each other when they're not at their best can make a big difference in getting through the day yeah yeah i agree and i think people people want to people want to share people people want to talk about it um I think we oftentimes are afraid that maybe people don't want to hear it. You know, you know, my problems are minor people. I don't want to burden them with, with this little problem when they have that mm -hmm. problem. Um, mm -hmm. But I think when we volunteer that compassion to others and, and open that door a little bit, I think people are, are kind of uh, pining to, to talk about their feelings. It's just, it just don't don't think that others are, are um, willing or are interested in hearing them. But I think we all would, generally speaking, jump at the opportunity to help our friends and colleagues and even strangers. Absolutely. And I, I think like we have kind of alluded to, too, 
to give it that intentional space to take care of ourselves by, you know, creating a space to say, I, you know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. what's going on with me. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to, um, you know, with our teams here, as we've rolled out stress first aid programs, really start with that very basic universal language of how I'm feeling today. How can we talk about this? How can we um, encourage people to, whether it's at the start of a team huddle or just pausing to, to insert this into our day. How can we teach people that this is a useful practice? Um, and uh, for the teams that have sort of taken to it, it's been um, an approachable tool and a useful tool. So uh, it, gives, it gives good language and good opportunity for people to begin to take that moment to reflect. And you're talking about, you, you call it a stress first aid kit, right? Yeah, so the Stress First Aid program um, was originally developed for the military based on this foundational research that um, I was referring to, um, and that of those sort of five factors that mm-hmm. um, promote um, sort of healing from trauma or recovery from trauma, I should say. And um, so it was initially developed for the military and then it was adapted for first responders and um, the Schwartz Center um, in partnership with Patricia Watson, who's one of the researchers um, from this foundational research um, has adapted it further as we've gone through the, the pandemic and made it more accessible for healthcare organizations and healthcare teams. Um, and so it, it really, it uses not just the stress continuum model, but a sort of uh, an approach to intervention to address those five key factors. Mm-hmm. And it, so it started with the military. How is it implemented now? You know, I would hesitate to say how the military or first responders are implementing it. Um, but there are all sorts of manual operational manuals that the military uses this, um, this information in, uh, in terms of how they teach their, their teams to respond. So uh, that is not my area of expertise per se, Um, but definitely I can reflect on sort of how we've seen it here. We've really, um, so essentially we've tried to take the stress continuum model as a foundation, really understanding, and it's a peer to peer model. So really the focus being on teaching people these concepts of um, building an understanding of how people react to stress and how they move from that green in the ready state all the way along that stress continuum into the red or being at a point where they are potentially, you know, ill from stress, meaning, you know, acute distress, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, so the, the question of understanding how we ourselves react to stress, but then teaching people to begin to assess others around them, you know, taking stock of the people that you're working with on a daily basis. So we'll tell people um, as we go out to the teams and start to, to teach this, you know, you work with these people day in, day out, you work on these care teams and you get used to, um, you know, how individuals interact with you and what they're like. And, um, beginning to understand when you're seeing a fellow colleague who may be showing signs that they're reacting to stress. Um, 
one of the things that we said, our wellness director is one of the most, um, you know, vivacious and bubbly personalities I've ever met. She's just, you know, full of energy and light every day. Um, and one of the examples we've given teams is that, you know, if she comes into a meeting and you ask her how she is and she doesn't say, well, good morning, sunshine. You know, if that's not her first response and she just says, oh, hey, like automatically there's your first sign, right? You know, this person, you know how she reacts and how she um, engages with the team on a daily basis. And if something's different, that's for you as her, as her colleague, something's up. She's not her usual self. And that's the, the kind of thing we want to begin to teach people to recognize in themselves what their response to stress is and when they're reacting and when they may need intervention mm. and also begin to recognize that in each other um, so that the first response when someone snaps at them maybe is not, oh, what a jerk, but like, oh, gosh, what's going on with this person that would make them have that kind of response? That's not typical. No. Um, and then begin to, once you can recognize they may be reacting to stress, okay, now what's my next step? I can ask them, how are you feeling today? Or I can offer them help, or I can offer to, you know, get them something or have them take a walk with them or step outside, you know, just giving staff these sort of small um, bits of education around sort of beginning to recognize stress in themselves and others, and then where do you go from there? And obviously, you know, we're talking about this with people who, again, are not, um, do not hold advanced degrees in psychiatry, psychology, uh, you know, they're not uh, mental health counselors. So it's really just, you know, how can you begin to recognize and what do you have at your disposal in terms of your ability to respond? And then when do you need to use your resources? What are your resources? What are your supports on your team, in your organization? And how do you know when it's time to refer them to someone else? Because you've reached the extent of your capabilities. Yeah, very powerful stuff. And and while this, while this set of tools is designed to um, deal with stress, it it really seems like the they are ways in which just to make your experience of life in that particular context better. Uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about being aware enough, having have, having the self awareness to know when something is is wrong or something is uh, something needs to be addressed, and and then also having awareness of your of your colleagues and those with whom you come into contact, knowing their typical response, like the woman you described who is always on, on top of the world. And if she wasn't, yeah. then you knew something was up. Um, but having that, knowing how people Absolutely. are and understanding them and, and, and then being in a group of people who are doing the same allows you to feel understood, feel connected. And then you have that social connection which is probably one of the biggest bulwarks against stress out there. Right? I mean, just being connected and being part Absolutely. of something broader. Connectedness, so. right? It's one of those five foundational factors that connectedness, just having that team support is huge. But like you said, the self-awareness and building that self-awareness is really hugely important. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've taught staff is um, an exercise called stop, which is really just our effort 
to um, get people to pause mm -hmm. and something, a tool we've used, um, it was adapted and, and I can provide you the resource for that, but it was adapted from uh, uh, someone else. And we've taken it upon ourselves to create a visual tool for teams to get people to stop, think, observe, and then proceed. So really that that tool of, you know, these pauses are so influential in our ability to kind of take it a situation that may be escalating or a time when you yourself feel yourself reacting to stress and that could easily go south. And instead of just putting your head down and pushing forward, which we've already talked about is so ineffective, right? But really then giving people in a, a strategy to take that pause, to stop, to think about what's going on, to think about what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, to observe um, in their body what's going on, um, and and potentially take some intervention there. Whether it's you know some people respond well to to deep breathing and to sort of internally focused moments of pause. Other people that's not their thing, and they need a more external focus or you know a physical outlet for some of their um, stress reactions. But you know take taking that moment to pause before moving forward. And so if you build that self-awareness, not only of, um, you know, how you react and respond to stress, but what are some strategies that you respond to for stress reduction? And those again, also are, are very unique to the individual. So taking some time proactively to think about that in advance, then allows you to have those strategies in your toolkit, if you will, for, for when times get tough. And that's part of what we've been, uh, you know, trying to teach people as well as we implement a stress first aid program. I love that. It's, uh, we, we commonly say, don't, don't just sit there, do something. But the flip of that <laughs> is don't, don't, don't just, don't just do something, sit there, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, pause. and, and what do you do with it? Like, like you said, sort of, you know, don't just go forward and, and run forward without thinking about it, but stop and pause and then think about what are the things I'm gonna do intentionally that will be helpful for me. And we've tried to give staff lists too of things that, you know, if, if deep breathing doesn't work for you, you know, um, you know, do you, listening to music, taking a walk outside, looking out the window at nature, you know, and some, some strategies obviously take a lot more time, but there are simple short bursts of things that are, are helpful too. And even just the physical, you know, pause of taking a drink of water, you know, taking a moment to sit down, you know, especially in these environments that are so physically taxing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate your time. And um, we are we are running out of that time. I know your time is valuable. <laughs> I, you, you kind of touched on this, but I like to ask all of, all of my guests this question with intentionality. So I'll, uh, you may answer this <laughs> how, how I anticipated, or you might, you might change what you said previously or add to what you said previously, but, but you're in a profession of giving, um, like you talked about those who enter the, the workforce in, in the healthcare arena, generally speaking, want to help people. That's what, that's what the job is. Um, but you know, you can't give away what you don't have as people like to say. So you got to keep your cup full and there are an endless combination of things that people do to keep their cups full so that they can help others. 
what is what's your secret recipe? What do you do uh, <laughs> to, to my, be your best self? To be my best self. Oh gosh, such a loaded question, right? Um, <laughs> They're all loaded. <laughs> oh, indeed. Um, you know, I really try to think of, I, I know I've kind of used this expression an attitude of gratitude, which is so easy to say and hard to do at times, but um, I've tried to do little things to remind myself of the good intentionally um, at our dinner table at home. I have I have three children and, and we do highlights and challenges. What was every, what was the highlight of everybody's day mm -hmm. and what was the biggest challenge? And, um, you know, we get an opportunity to talk about what was our highlight? What was this great thing that happened? Let's celebrate it here. And then what are you, what are you challenged by? What was the hardest thing you had to deal with? And if they had something, it gives an opportunity and a place to talk about something that was tough. And it also gives just by nature of us all sitting there together, a supportive place where someone really needs a helping hand to deal with it or just the family to listen, that's the place to go. And, and I feel like that's helpful um, for me and for our entire family. So that's been a, a great exercise. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of music too. If I'm acutely stressed, um, there's nothing like getting in a car and listening to music or singing in the shower. You know, I think that certainly is a stress reducer for me, um, whether it's any kind of singing, dancing. And I can't say that I'm any good at either of those two, <laughs> um, much to my my kids dismay. I, you know, sure, I've embarrassed them a time or two. But, yeah. um, you know, finding something that you connect to, whether or not you're good at it is besides the point it's how does it make you feel right and i am um supremely uh aided by the experience of listening to music singing at the top of my lungs dancing like crazy you know those are always helpful and um i found in my own personal life there's not much that uh, a little dance party with my kids won't fix <laughs> this is true i have i have kids of my own five of them in fact and, oh, awesome! And we have had our share of dance parties, and I have done my share of embarrassing my kids with singing and, yeah. and dancing. Uh, do you have a favorite genre of music? Oh gosh, I'm very eclectic in my taste. There's not there's not much that I can't get behind. Uh, you know, I yeah, <laughs> I have a wide range. Um, you know, my kids, of course, are are into to pop and indie pop and whatnot. So I'll sing along with them, but. I love it all. My dad was a big fan of, of jazz and blues. And, yeah. um, you know, I like a lot of, you know, just by nature of when I grew up, 90s grunge rock and whatnot. So, you know, uh, uh, there there's not much that I won't listen to or, or appreciate. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a huge music fan, but that, that's one of my... Awesome. That's one of the hardest questions to answer. What's your favorite kind? Or, or oh, I gosh, say I, I never have music. an answer. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I like someone recently. <laughs> someone recently asked me, "What's your favorite band?" And I was like paralyzed oh, by that question. Yeah. And then he was so kind as to offer me the opportunity to to give me a top five, and I was like, even that, I feel like mm -hmm. paralyzed mm -hmm. by it. Uh, <laughs> it's a, such a tough question, you know. It's like choosing your favorite child, right? How do you yeah. do that? Yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> that's a great analogy. Although right. I, I, could, I, I could probably pick my favorite child easier than my favorite band. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the day, though. That's true. Right? It's a yeah. It's, it's, it's a never moving a target. Permanent. Yeah, never a permanent <laughs> title. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
Well, there's there's a lot more I could learn from you. I'm sure um, we talked about we talked about we used the term stress a lot, obviously, and then we talked about mental health. Mm-hmm. We talked about trauma, and I'd like to I'd like to talk about the relationship between these three are this, the same things, but we're we're running out of time here. Um, I promised I'd, I'd I'd keep it to about an hour, and we're close to an hour and a half now. So. Maybe I'll have you back if you. Um, I'd love to. It's so to. this is such an awesome experience for me because I just I love talking about this from the, I you know again my expertise is certainly um, you know I'm I'm not a psychiatrist I'm not a psychologist I'm not a mental health counselor I am a healthcare professional but uh, I think it's so important to have these conversations the more that we can talk about this and. Um, like we were talking about earlier, really normalize the experiences that we're all going through and the need to talk about this so that we can intervene, so that we can make people feel comfortable with seeking support and knowing, uh, we've talked about here at our organization, you know, that it's okay to not be okay. That's all right. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it's so important to have these conversations, calling light to that idea. I, I totally agree. Um, before we go, uh, how, how about you tell the tell our listeners where they can find you if they'd like to connect with you and ask additional questions or anything? That is a great question. Um, you know, maybe I can give you my email contact. Yeah. Um, I am at Hebrew Senior Life in the Boston area, and we're, uh, you know, proud to be a, a Harvard affiliate and have a fantastic and phenomenal research center associated with our organization. So, um, you know, I feel very lucky to have a lot of resources. And certainly if someone um, had questions that I felt like I couldn't answer, I I feel very blessed to work with a a large group of individuals and probably point people in the right direction. Um, So I'd be happy to, you have my email, I'd be happy to have people email me. Um, I'd love to be as useful as I can to as many people as I can. Wonderful. I appreciate that. It has been a true delight, and I I uh, yes. do look forward to having you back if if that offer. I would love to. All right. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. I have it on the record, Sarah. It's, it's, <laughs> you do. It's been great, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much for your time and for having me. No, you're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.